Hi, my name is Morgan Maitland, and this is the King and Kingdom podcast, where we study the Bible to know the King and seek first His kingdom. In this series, we focus on understanding the Old Testament. God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29. And he says that when 70 years of exile are complete, he will visit the people and bring them back to the land. And then we come to these verses 70 years later in Ezra chapter 1. It says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. It's amazing to see the sovereignty of God working in the heart of a pagan king like Cyrus. God stirred him up to send his people back so that they can build him. A temple. And so this takes us to the next phase of Old Testament history, the final phase, and that is the return of the people to the land. Now, the people return to the land in three phases, three groups. The first group is sent by Cyrus and led by Zerubbabel. Now, this first group goes with great resources sent by the king. They have gold, silver, censers, bowls, vessels, etc. And all of these things are used to build God's temple, just as Cyrus proclaimed. And Zerubbabel leads the group back. And even though they face some opposition in the land, they eventually finish the temple. It's constructed, and it's ready for use. Now, just because the temple's built, it's uh, not yet usable because there has been no order for worship that has been established. And for that, they would need a Bible teacher. And that's where Ezra, the author of this book, comes in. And that is when the second return happens. So the first group is led by Zerubbabel. They build the temple. The second group is led by Ezra. And Ezra is a man of the word. He is a Bible teacher. So one of my favorite passages for Bible teachers in the Bible is Ezra 7.10. It says this, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Notice the order of priority there. First, the first priority is that Ezra as a Bible teacher would study the law of the Lord. Bible teachers need to know the book and to know it well. Then what's the next step? Do you quickly move to teaching it to other people? No, Ezra studied it 
and then he did it. He applied it first in his own life. I think that's good for Bible teachers to remember that you're not just studying so that you can prepare a sermon for your congregation or your listeners, but you're studying it for your own heart, for your own application, that you would not just be a hearer and a speaker, but a hearer, a doer, then a speaker. And then finally, of course, Ezra taught the word to the people. And it was on this basis that the order of worship was established. See, Ezra's concern is for holiness and worship, that the people would approach God in reverence as they reinstate the sacrifices and the order of worship in the temple, and that also there would be purity among God's people, that they would be um, morally upright toward one another, and that they would abide by God's word. And so Ezra taught the word. And so the temple is built Worship is established under Ezra, and then there is the need for the third return. See, the people of uh, in Judah were attacked by foreign nations. They had no defense, no protective measures. And so that initiates the third return under Nehemiah, and Nehemiah's purpose was to build the walls. So just again, a review. Zerubbabel built the temple. Ezra established worship, the order of worship. And finally, Nehemiah, with the third group in the third return, he builds the walls. The walls are complete in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. And so the people have what they need to be a nation. They have walls protecting their borders. But their hearts still need to be aligned with God's word. And so we see an interesting thing happen in the middle of Nehemiah. If you go to chapter 8, you see that, ne- that sorry, Ezra stands before the people in the public square, and he reads from the book of the law. And it's interesting to see how the people respond to Ezra's reading. It says in Ezra 8, verse 8, that he read from the book, from the law of God, from the law of God clearly, and it gave the sense so the people understood the reading. And the people's response to the reading of God's word was brokenness. It says in verse 9 that all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. It says that they assembled with fasting and sackcloth, chapter 9, verse 1. They were mourning their sin because the word of God was exposing their heart and revealing to them their wickedness. And so that's the first step with your heart being aligned with God's word is recognizing that he is holy. He is God. He is set apart, perfect, and righteous. His law is a righteous standard. And we are sinners. We're broken. We have fallen so short of God's righteous standard. And so this is a great start. The people are finally recognizing that they have a heart problem, that they're sinners, and they take responsibility for their sin. In chapter 9 of Nehemiah, there is a massive confession. The people confess their sins and the sin of their fathers before God. They recognize God's great work of salvation that God chose Abram, and he brought him out of Ur in verse 7. He saved the people out of Egypt 
and redeemed them from slavery in verses 9 and 10. They acknowledged that they and their fathers acted presumptuously in verse 16. They stiffened their neck and did not obey God's commands. In verse 33, they recognized that they have acted wickedly, that their kings, their princes, their fathers, through even the united and the divided kingdoms, disobeyed God and sinned against him. This is a full confession. It is a massive repentance of the people. They are finally acknowledging the real problem. The problem is that they are sinners. And in repentance, you don't just turn from sin, uh, turn away from the old way, but you turn to God, back to the Lord, and, and you turn back to the new way, his way, that is. And so the people make a commitment. They essentially renew their covenant to God and his word. They say, we recognize where we fell short. We recognize our sin, and now we want to come back to God and recommit ourselves to him. Listen to the commitments that they make in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 29. They make an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. And then they give specific promises, specific commitments. They say first in verse 30, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters For our sons. Now, why is that significant? You remember, intermarrying with foreign nations often leads to idolatry, worshiping the pagan gods that the foreign nations worship. So, their first commitment is not to intermarry with foreign nations. Their next commitment is in verse 31 If the peoples of the land bring in any goods or grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. They recommit themselves to not break the Sabbath, one of the Ten Commandments. They will regard the Sabbath day as holy. That's their second commitment. Their third commitment is in verse 32. They say, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. They essentially recommit themselves to tithing or giving so that the Levites are provided for. The priesthood is provided for as they um, ordinate services, as they officiate services. They need to be provided for. And, And similar today, how pastors need to be provided for by the giving of church members, the Levitical priesthood needed to be provided for through the giving of the saints. They needed to show with their money that worship is a priority for them and for God. Will they keep their commitments? That's the question, isn't it? Will they keep their commitments? Well, Nehemiah goes on a little business trip, and he's out of town for a bit, and then he comes back in Nehemiah uh, chapter 13, And look at what he finds the people of Israel doing. In verse 10, it says, Nehemiah is speaking in the first person, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field. Uh Uh-oh. 
the people aren't giving for the worship service. They're not giving the money to provide for the priesthood, so the Levites have to go and find work elsewhere. Strike one, they're not making a priority of worship. And then it says in verse 15, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. Uh-oh, strike two. They're working on the Sabbath. They're going against their specific commitment to not work on the Sabbath. They're not regarding God's Sabbath as holy. And finally, of course, as usual, there's a strike three. It says in verse 23, he says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. The people went against their third commitment. They are intermarrying with foreign nations. And of course, that intermarriage caused them to sin, to worship the idols of those pagan nations. So the people of Israel are back to their old habits. They commit themselves to God. It looks really good. They align their hearts with his, but then their hearts wander and stray back into idolatry and back into sin. Oh man, it's tragic to watch them go through these cycles over and over and over again. It seemed like this stage in their history might initiate the kingdom. I mean, everything was ready. They're back in their land. The temple was rebuilt. They have walls around their city. All they needed was the king. And uh, once their hearts were aligned with God, maybe he would bring in that everlasting kingdom that he promised. But it's pretty clear. Not yet. Not yet. The hearts of the people aren't truly after God's heart. They haven't truly come to national repentance. They're not ready yet. The king's not there. The, the temple is, um, the, the Levitical priesthood has gone away because they're not being provided for, and the people are back to sin. They needed a savior first. They needed somebody to deal with the bigger problem. See, the big problem for Israel was never the foreign nations. It was never these big empires that would rise up and take them captive. The problem for Israel was always their own sin. And that needed to be dealt with. They needed a better priest to come in and atone for sins once and for all. They need a better prophet to preach them good news and to call them to repentance and faith. They needed a way to be made right with God permanently. And so now the stage is set for a solution. A savior king who would come first to save his people, to make a great sacrifice to atone for their sins. See, they're not ready for the king to reign and rule yet. Their hearts needed to be cleansed. They needed forgiveness. And so this stage sets the stage for a Messiah, the suffering 
servant of Isaiah 53, the Christ who would himself die for sin, come down to earth, God would become a man and live a perfect life, the perfect life that no one in Israel could live. And he would die on the cross as the perfect spotless lamb, the the greater sacrifice that they needed, and he would atone for sin. He would take the penalty for sins upon himself. And being the God-man, he was able to take the full weight of all the sin for all God's people upon himself and suffer its consequences. And then he would rise from the dead three days later, proving, declaring victory over sin and death, being the one who was promised in Genesis 3.15 to crush the head of Satan. His dominion has been vanquished. He is no longer in charge. God is. This stage sets the stage for Jesus. And so, after the history of Nehemiah, there's no more history and no more prophets uh, that speak in the Old Testament. Um, There are 400 years of silence that anticipate the words of Matthew 1.1. The great expectation hits us in the first verse of the New Testament. When we read with excitement that Jesus is this Christ. He's the son of Abraham. The son of David. The anointed one. The Messiah, the promised one that would make all wrongs right. That would come first to save his people from their sins by making an atoning sacrifice, a way for sinners to be made right with God. But would still come again to reign and rule and to establish his forever kingdom.